to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank. So the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frauds. 
The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me When I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your house and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your house and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them. as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else. If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said it would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? 
We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far. Plead for me. Then Moses said, behold, I'm going out from you. And I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow, the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kin and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, About this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. 
Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beasts. And hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants, So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandsons how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I and the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? 
Moses said. We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you. If you, if ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hell has left. So Moses stretched out his hand, his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land. So the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. And Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they asked every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the, Lord, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses says, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt 
shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Amen. I'll talk with you about the subject Ten plagues, one heart, zero repentance. Ten plagues, one heart, zero repentance. That's the way I'm summarizing these four chapters, Exodus 7 to 11. The bulk of these chapters, of course, are taken up with a description of the ten plagues on Egypt. Look back at chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. There's a kind of stretching exercise that takes place there, a kind of warm-up exercise. God foretold that Pharaoh would, not, would, would want a sign from Moses. And sure enough, Pharaoh requested one. And you can hear the echo of Jesus' words from the New Testament. It's a wicked and adulterous generation that requests a sign. Moses turns the, sna- the staff into a snake. Pharaoh's Egyptians do the same thing. And even though Moses' snake swallows up the the snakes of the magicians, a a definite sign that that God will swallow up these false prophets, verse 13 of chapter 7, Pharaoh's heart became hard. One plague after another followed. You get the plague of blood, verses 14 to 24. All the rivers, all the waters, even the waters that's in the cups and the pots in people's homes turns into blood. You get the plague of frogs. God calls up this great swarm of frogs from from the rivers to inhabit the lands and the homes, even in people's beds. Then number three, you get the plague of gnats. Chapter 8, verses 16 to 19. And in these first couple of plagues, the magicians do an interesting thing. I don't know what they're thinking. They see Moses do all of these plagues, destroys the water, the fish in the water. He calls up these frogs. And for some reason, they're like, oh, we can do that too. As if the judgment of God wasn't enough, they doubled it by their sorcery and their arts. Chapter 8, verses 20 to 24. God seems to now just be aggravating the Egyptians with the plague of flies. When he strikes the livestock in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Then Moses throws up the the boil, uh, the dust into the air, and that becomes a kind of plague um, so that the Egyptians all break out in boils all over their bodies. The animals get boils as well if they're not in shelter. There's hail. Verses 13 to 26 of chapter 19. There's locusts eating up the plant life. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 15. There's a kind of 
psychological terror, with the plague of darkness. Imagine for three days, absolutely no light such that you can't even see other people in your house. And then the plague of death on the firstborn. Exodus chapter 11. And these plagues are really the fulfillment of what God said he would do when he said he would stretch out his mighty hand in judgment against Pharaoh. It's remarkable to consider the timeline. The longest stated break between plagues is the seven days between the plague of blood and the plague of frogs. If the other plagues are coming a day or two after one another, then all of this happened in about 20 days. In 20 days, God completely devastated the religious, social, natural, economic, and political system of the most powerful country on the earth, Egypt. So what does this tell us about God? Five things I want to suggest to you that these judgments reveal about God and God's purposes in the midst of calamity. Number one, God is pronouncing the reality of judgment. He is pronouncing that judgment is real. We see that in Exodus chapter 7, verse 4. Look at that verse again there uh, with me. God says, I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my host, the people of Israel. I know this is an obvious point, but it needs to be stated. There are people who live as though they have an unending number of days in which to commit an unending parade of sins as though they will never give an account. They live as if there is no judgment and no God to whom they will have to answer. Beloved, that is a mistake. In these ten judgments, the righteous Lord screams to us, flee the wrath to come. God says, my judgment is terrible. He says, you cannot withstand it. God says, run, turn, come to me before my judgment devastates you. We should never live like we will not give an account to God. We most surely will. God has appointed a day for judgment. We cannot pretend that's not on the calendar. And God's wrath is like spilled blood, swarming pests, devastating famine, the deepest darkness, and eternal death. These are all but commercials to the terror of that final day of wrath. God is proving that judgment is real. Number two, God is proving that he is the Lord. Back in Exodus chapter 5, which we did not read, verse 2, Pharaoh actually scoffed at God. Exodus 5, 2 says, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. So God introduces himself. Over and over again, God says, I am the Lord. See there in chapter 7, verse 5. He says, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Again, in verse 17 of chapter 7, when Moses announces the first plague, God explains that plague by saying, by this you will know that I am the Lord. It must be known that God is not just the Lord of those who believe in him. He is the Lord of all. 
He's the Lord not just of the Israelites, but also of the Egyptians. He's the Lord of the righteous and the wicked. He is the Lord of the faithful and the unbelieving. He is Lord over the entire earth. And pandemics remind us of this. If we have ears to hear and eyes to see. When God sets out to prove he's Lord, that's the same as saying he wants the world to know, chapter 8, verse 10, that there is no one like the Lord our God. Or in Exodus 9, verse 14, God sends the hail so that you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. That's the point behind Exodus 8, verses 18 and 19. When the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And what do they say? (laughs) Uh, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This ain't no sorcery. This ain't no parlor trick. This is divine. This is, this is God's power. That's what that image of the finger of God means. This has been done by the hand of God, not by man. God does it this way so that all the imposters must stand aside. So that the one true and living God might be heard. He does it this way so that pretenders have to stop pretending. That posers have to stop posing. So that blasphemers must declare God. He is God. Pharaoh made a bet with his mouth. He wrote a check with his mouth that his behind couldn't cash. When he said, who is God? I don't know him. God is proving that he is the Lord. Number three, God is producing worshipers. God is producing worshipers. That's what he's up to in these plagues in Egypt. That's what he's up to in famines and calamity. The Lord Almighty uses these judgments to give Israel reasons to worship him. He frees Israel so that Israel can glorify him. He uses the plague to give them a a testimony to sustain their praise of him. Earth, Wind, and Fire used to sing a song called Reasons. Y'all know, y'all singing it already. The reasons, the reasons that we hear. Stop, stop, come back, come back. <laughs> it was a song, if you ever read the lyrics, by a man who couldn't find reasons either for loving the woman or leaving the woman. He was torn, he was looking for reasons. He was grasping for reasons. Now, here's the thing. God won't have Israel grasping for reasons to worship him. He's going to give them plenty of reasons to praise him and to worship him. They're going to see the mighty hand of God stretched out and his mighty power demonstrated against the most powerful nation of the earth. And when God leads them out of Egypt, they're going to sing the reasons. Because you sent mighty judgments against Israel, because you parted the Red Sea, because you drowned Pharaoh and the chariots, because you heard our cry when we were in slavery, because you led us out by cloud and by fire, we have reasons to praise you. God is producing worshipers. They're going to have a testimony, and that testimony is going to fuel their testimony about God. Israel will sing of the Exodus the way Christians sing of the cross and the resurrection. The Exodus is going to make them worshipers for generations to come. Notice Exodus chapter 10, verse 2. Look there with me. Exodus 10, 
verse 2. God is going to show these signs that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. So he's not just going to create worshipers in that generation he frees. But for children and grandchildren, there will be testimony to the greatness of God. So that not only shall we praise the Lord, but our children should praise the Lord and our grandchildren should praise the Lord. I think this is God's version of Joshua 24, is it? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's calling the Egyptians to make that same declaration. Beloved, if and when the coronavirus is over, will God's people worship him for his great power and mercy? Or will we go back to our dull routines forgetting God's mercy? Will the unbelieving community see the faith of Christians and have reasons to worship Christ? The pandemic is an opportunity for us to, to show why, to show the justification, to show the reasons for praising this God. May we not be like Pharaoh, see the signs, see the mercy of God, and turn away as if nothing had ever been done for us. Here's the fourth thing. God is providing grace to his people. Did you notice that? As the plagues fell and became more severe, the Lord separated and protected his people. Notice in chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, the, the plague of the flies. God, God says there, but... On that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. Or again in chapter 9, verse 4, with the plague of the livestock. Notice what God's word says there. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Chapter 9, verse 26, in the plague of the hell. See there in verse 26? Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hell. Most amazing of all, chapter 10, verse 23, the plague of darkness. The whole land of Egypt is blanked out with darkness, so that you could see nothing. Verse 23, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. How good is God? The Lord separates Israel from the ungodly. God sets them apart for himself. He protects Israel from the judgment and the destruction that is coming upon the unrighteous. The place of safety is where or, or is inside or with the people of God. That's where the Lord's special grace and saving favor are experienced. Inside of his covenant community. 
God's protection of Israel in the Exodus. Now, that doesn't mean that no Christian today will get sick with the coronavirus or uh, suffer from other kinds of disasters, but it does mean Christians today will not suffer ultimately. The wrath of God that visits the unbelieving has been poured out on Christ. Jesus has taken away God's wrath for all those who believe. The the darkness of death shall never overfall us. The the blood that spilt will never be ours. For Christ has spilled his own blood in our place as a ransom for us to purchase us back from sin and judgment so that we would live forever. And live forever in the light of God, in the shelter of God, in the safety and the love of God. That's why we have no reason to fear a plague. The worst plague has already happened. Death. So we, we fear not any lesser plagues because Christ has defeated the grave. He has defeated death. God shelters us now in Christ if we have faith in him. Even if we should lose this life, yet we shall live everlasting, imperishable life. That's all right. Number five, God is proclaiming his sovereign power and mercy. We see that in Exodus 9, verses 15 to 18. Look there with me. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, God's saying, listen, it ought to be clear by now, I could have killed all y'all. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. I mean, God's having this face to face with Pharaoh. He's saying, listen, you actually think you boss. It ought to be clear that I could wipe you out, but you refuse to let my people go. And, and, and in fact, you, you're still exalting yourself against Israel. You still think you are better than them. You still think you are stronger than them. You still think that you have control over them. But here's what's up. I raised you up for this purpose. <laughs> Not even your resistance is really determined by you. I raised you up because there's something I want to show the world. I want to show the world my power. I want to show the world that I am really the Pharaoh. I'm really the God. I'm really the reigner and ruler over all things. Your real purpose is not to be king on Egypt's throne. Your real purpose is to be an object lesson for all the world. That I am God. And there is none beside me. And there is none who can rival me. He's proclaiming his sovereignty. He's proclaiming his mercy. This is why in Romans 9, when Paul goes on to explain how God works things out by his own will in salvation, he harkens right back to this whole scene with Pharaoh. That God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. 
and he will harden whom he will harden. And shall the thing formed say to the one who formed it, why have you made me thus? No, God is God. We are creatures. And because he's God, he rules all things from dust on the ground, which he may turn into gnats, to dust on the throne, which he shall make nothing if he wishes. God is God all by himself. These are the five things that we can take away from these judgments, God's purposes behind these plagues of Egypt. So maybe a final exhortation from this section. Beloved, when we face any kind of disaster, personal or pandemic, never think that God only has one purpose in either our suffering or our deliverance. He's up to more, much more than we can fathom or think. He's often doing things behind our backs that will bring him greater glory than we ever knew. And so we are exhorted in the New Testament, for example, to, to rejoice in the midst of such time. We, we, we must take joy in, in a God who does infinitely better than we could ask or imagine, even in the midst of suffering. And, and we must rest from anxiety until he delivers us knowing that the way and the timing of his deliverance again will accomplish much more than just our personal relief. And that will be to God's greater glory. While we wait for deliverance, we should start rehearsing the testimony of God's work in our lives. Start practicing the praise, documenting the reasons, and exalting his name. Those are the 10 plagues. Notice the one heart through this section of Exodus. Uh, we, we see it repeated several times through these four or five chapters. A little phrase, hardened heart. The entire conflict between Pharaoh and God is really fought on the battleground of Pharaoh's heart, not the soil of Egypt. The future of two nations, Israel and Egypt, depends on one man's heart. Never underestimate the importance of one leader to an entire people. What do you think is the most alarming thing in these chapters? It's, it's full of things that are alarming, full of things that are frightening and devastating. What do you think is the most incredibly alarming? For me, it's, even, it's there even before Moses goes back into Egypt. It's, it's, it's God announcing that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. So turn with me real quickly to Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. Notice the stage was set, the die was cast, even before Moses ever went into the court of Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God had the 10th plague already in mind before the first plague was cast. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. 
so that he might strike Pharaoh down and reveal his power and deliver his people. Pharaoh's heart is hard because God hardened it. Pharaoh's heart is hard also because Pharaoh hardened it. Both things are true. So what does it mean? What does it look like to have a hardened heart before God such that even if you see miracles or even if you see devastation, you, you don't turn to him? What, what, how does that happen? Well, three things in these several chapters. Number one, God hardened Pharaoh's heart by preventing Pharaoh from listening. Listening to God's word. Notice Exodus 7 verses 3 and 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Pharaoh rejected Moses in chapter 7 verse 16. While accepting the counsel of magicians and advisors. But again, even when the magicians and advisors had to admit that this was done by the finger of God. God was really working the miracles. Pharaoh refused to listen to them. Look at Exodus 8 verse 19. Exodus 8, chapter 8, verse 19. And the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them, as the Lord has said. Beloved, there are no safe times to refuse to listen to God's word. There is no way to not listen to God's word which does not also in some degree result in a hardening of the heart. Uh, two things just can't go together. You can't say, no, Lord, and have a soft heart to the Lord. You, you, you can't say, I don't want to hear that, and have a tender heart with God. It is by the refusal to listen that stoniness grows in the soul. But the heart gets hard. And so it is, for those who have ears to hear, it is incumbent upon us to hear the word of the Lord and to say, yes, Lord, and to do it gladly. Here's the second thing. God hardened Pharaoh's heart by allowing Pharaoh to continue sinning. In fact, that's how Pharaoh repeatedly responds to God's kindness. Look in Exodus 8, verses 30 to 32. There we, Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarm of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. See how complete is the Lord's relief? Took everything away, not a fly remained. 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Jump over to chapter 9, verses 34 and 35. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says that basically the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. That, that if we see some kindness in our life, that if we attribute to the goodness of God, 
Uh, we, it could be any number of things. It could be the kind of relief that Pharaoh saw from suffering and plagues and devastation. It could positively be uh, a good blessing, a, a job, a home, any number of things. The, the Bible says, now, when we see the kindness of God in our lives, we are meant to trace that kindness back to God, and we are then meant to turn to God in repentance. God's kindness is an invitation to come to him. Have you experienced God's kindness? Has that encouraged you to go to him? With that encouragement, have you actually gone to him? If not, what's happening spiritually is you are hardening your heart. It's precisely what Pharaoh illustrates for us in in refusing to look upon the relief and the mercy and the kindness of God and to then turn to God, he was actually being hardened, not softened. Number three, God hardened Pharaoh's heart by allowing Pharaoh to harden himself. Again, we see this in chapter 7, verse 14. Notice there. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. And so he sends Moses out again to deal with him. Exodus chapter 8, verse 32. This time Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. It's like the old vinyl records with the A side and the B side. God hardens Pharaoh's heart on the A side. On the B side, Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. Essentially, God gives gives Pharaoh over to his nature, to his sin nature. He intensifies what's already in Pharaoh's heart by allowing Pharaoh to have his desires. See this very thing described in Romans 1 verses 25 to 28 where God gives people over to their desires. When that happens, God is no longer restraining us from the evil that tempts us or the evil that is in us if we are not his people. We don't often think about it, but we actually live in a world full of restraints, divine restraints that keep us from being as bad as we could be. There's the restraint of a God-given conscience. Every human being knows right and wrong because God has written it on the conscience, Romans 2, 14 and 15. There's the restraint of God's spirit, John 16, 8. There's the restraint of the church's witness, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. There's the restraint of civil government, Romans 13. We have so many leashes on us, restraining us from being barking dogs, chasing after every car of sin. God has been kind in that way. We're accustomed to thinking of the leash as a kind of restraint, a restriction of freedom, but it is a protection. And sometimes pulling at the leash, God unclips the collar. And we run headlong into the mess of sin. We actually catch the car. This is how hardening happens. It's terrifying to think that the very thing we desire and see as good, if it's opposed to God's will, will be what God uses in stoning our heart in judgment. We may get what we want, but not want what we get. 
we must be careful to sift our desires by God's word. To desire what he desires for us in the way that he wants it for us. For in that is his protection and his restraint. Outside of that, even good things can become a hardening. You ever seen people who are doing pretty well in life and act as though they don't need God? Oh, it's terrifying. There are two things in God's hardening, Pharaoh, that, again, I find terrifying. First, that fact that God will do it. He will harden the human heart. Second, the person being hardened won't really notice it because they'll be following the desires of their own hearts. It's terrifying to be in that much trouble and to be blind to it. Isn't that what we see with Pharaoh? Every evidence that God is God and he is not and that he should turn and trust God. Rejected. Spurned. Because he wanted to be Pharaoh. Which leads us to our final point. There are ten plagues, one heart, zero repentance. Beloved, disasters are intended to provoke us to repentance. Not just God's kindness, but also the hard things that happen in life are, are really bugles. They are trumpets blaring to us, turn back to God. I say that on the authority of Jesus. In Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, the disciples come to him and ask him about two terrible incidents where some leader killed Jewish people, uh, profaned their blood, profaned their sacrifices. And where the Tower of Siloam fell and killed several people. And they wanted to know from Jesus, what's the deal? And Jesus says, unless you repent, it will happen to you likewise. The lesson wasn't to figure out who among those people who were killed were righteous or unrighteous. The lesson was, whoa, let me use this as an occasion to turn to God myself. The same is true of Pharaoh in Exodus. Despite the Lord's many judgments and the preaching of Moses, Pharaoh never repents. He cannot repent. His heart is hard. The difference between damnation and salvation is whether your heart is hardened or softened to God. Pharaoh shows us a picture of false repentance. That's why I call this zero repentance. He shows us the false repentance of simply wanting relief rather than wanting God. Exodus 8, verse 8, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But when God takes away the frogs in verse 14, verse 15, we read this. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. There are many false confessors in the world. Lots of people confess their sins and pray simply because they want the pain to stop. They want relief more than they want repentance and righteousness. And that kind of repentance is empty. Or, or Pharaoh shows us the false repentance of bargaining with God. Anybody ever bargained with God? Don't raise your hand. The false repentance of bargaining God while resisting God's will. 
Exodus 25, 28. Exodus 8, excuse me, verses 25 and 28. Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go, sacrifice to your God. Notice, here in the land. That ain't quite letting them go, is it? Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifice to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far, verse 28. Or consider Exodus 10, verse 8. Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, he said. But just who will you bring? Who will we go on? No, I have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you've been asking for. So not all the people, just the men. Exodus 10, 24. Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your lives, your flocks, and your herds behind. Isn't it interesting how slave owners never really want to let the slave go? Just want to keep control, want to keep holding on. He's just negotiating with God. Okay, y'all can go. Y'all have to do this here in the land. No, no, no. Okay, you can go outside the gates, but don't go far. Okay, you can go just the men, but not the women and children and the livestock. Okay, you and your children can go, but leave the livestock. He's bargaining with God. Where does that get him? Well, nowhere. The unrepentant are always negotiating and insisting upon their way. But true repentance is not a negotiation, beloved. True repentance is a surrender. We can't come to God demanding our own terms. We can only come to him on his terms, or we've not truly come to him at all. A third way of repenting falsely. Pharaoh shows us the false repentance of confessing sin while continuing in sin. What is this? Exodus 9, 27. That's what the word of the Lord says there. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. That sounds real good, doesn't it? It's like, Pharaoh, you, you might be getting there. But, but then look at what happens in verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. There's a way of confessing, a false repentance that people sometimes do. That's really just about buying time to sin again. I confess, I, I grovel, I admit I'm wrong, my people are wrong, we all wrong. As soon as the situation changes, as soon as things lighten up, as soon as they have opportunity to go back to their vomit, that's what they do. And this is why you can never measure repentance simply by what people say. We must repent and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. We have to confess our particular sins particularly and repent of them particularly. Because some people treat repentance like a turnstile, a 360. They were headed towards sin and they turned away from it and they kept turning. They turned all the way back to it. (laughs) But repentance is a 180, right? You headed towards sin, you turn. You get it behind you, and then you straighten out the curve. 
Moving away from sin and to God in faith. That's true repentance. That's what Pharaoh fails to give. That's what many talkers do today. All of these false forms of repentance end in judgment. It reminds me of the Lord's words in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. That should not be any one of us to hear those words. It's not even God's desire for any one of us. God desires that all of us would come to repentance and faith in his son. That's what the 10th plague is about. It isn't primarily about God in wrath judging the firstborn sons of Egypt. It's about his judging his only son, Christ, on Calvary's cross in our place. That's what that plague is pointing forward to. Not the sons of men making atonement for others, but the son of God making atonement for men. On that day when Christ was crucified, in the middle of the day, the sky turned dark. For three hours, darkness hung over the earth. And while he was on that cross, nailed to that cross, he shed his blood. Rivers, if you will, metaphorically, of blood spilled for the, the, the nations of all history. And he died. He was buried. And three days later, God raised him from the grave, lifted him from the sleep of death, lifted him from the curse of death, raised him in glory and power, and after 50 days, raised him to his right hand in heaven where Christ sits now interceding for his people, pleading for his people, praying for his people, so that if any of us sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous who has not only shed his blood to turn away God's judgment, but even now in heaven, in his heavenly session, is praying for us, interceding for us, keeping us as God's chosen and beloved. So that when the judgment of God falls upon the world, like Israelites in Goshen, it will not fall upon us. We will be his people in light. We will be his people with life. We will be his people forever. Pestilences and plagues and calamity for the people of God are reminders that God is God, that he is powerful, that he is good, that he is our savior, and our lives are here together with him. And we have the great privilege of not just rejoicing in that, but also offering that to those who don't yet know. For there are a lot of people in the world who are not Pharaoh, whose hearts will be changed by the good news of God's son dying for them. And it's our great pleasure to make that known. And maybe you came this morning not knowing Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. 
Confess your sin genuinely. Agree with God that it is sin. Look for your relief, not just of some temporary situation, but look for relief from God's coming wrath and judgment against sin. Look for relief, not just away from the things that are hard, but look for relief with God himself. Turn to God. Go to him in faith. Putting your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior to take away your sin and to give you eternal life. For that's why he's come. And he has never failed to save. Trust in him and you will be saved. Whatever happens with the coronavirus, let it keep pointing you to God. Let it keep pointing you to Jesus. Let it keep pointing you to the shelter that we have beneath the blood of the Son of God. Let it be a reason that you worship. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for you alone are God. There is no God but you. And there is no God like you. Lord, you are in control of everything, animate and inanimate. You're the God who can turn dust into gnats. And the God who oversees, who supervises the, the mutation of viruses. You're the God who gives wisdom enough to men to make vaccines or to enter quarantines. All of these things, blessings and calamities, are under your divine supervision. And you are ruling the world in such a way as to demonstrate that not only are you God alone, but that we can also come to you. For you are not so far off that, that we cannot know you. Indeed, you are as close as the praise that's in our mouths. And you are willing, O oh Lord, to, to save even to the uttermost. So even this morning, if there's one who did not know you, that you are such a God with such power, and you're such a God full of love as to give your son for their sins and to raise him from the dead, O oh Lord, would you grant those persons true repentance, and genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Save them this morning. Give them new life, we pray. And we do pray, O oh Lord, for the world, for all the nations, for all the peoples uh, who face, O oh Lord, the possibility of contagion in this pandemic. O oh Lord, we pray that their response would not merely be anxiety and worry, and mad trips to the grocery store, to gobble up supplies. We pray most fundamentally their response would be to turn to you and call upon your name and to be saved today. Send your spirit across the globe, we pray. Make the gospel alive and raise men to life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.